This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian, an Episcopal priest, and an activist who was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years until he was asked to resign because of his outspoken views on feminism, homosexuality, and other issues of our time. As a spiritual theologian, Matthew has written 30 books that have been translated into 48 languages. With Sounds True, Matthew has created an audio program called Radical Prayer, Love in Action, and is a featured presenter at the 2013 Wake Up Festival, held August 14th through the 18th in Estes Park, Colorado. This is Sounds True's second annual Wake Up Festival, and for more information, you can go to www.wakeupfestival.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Matthew and I spoke about the reinvention of culture and how spirituality can best flourish without the weight and encumbrances of organized religion. We also talked about group ritual and prayer and the origins of what Matthew Fox calls the cosmic mass. We also talked about the marriage between the sacred masculine and the divine feminine, and how this marriage is imperative in our time. Here's my conversation with Matthew Fox. I feel lucky and blessed to be having another conversation with Matthew Fox, someone whom I always find to be quite inspiring and provocative. Matthew, welcome. Thank you, Tommy. Good to be with you again. And you'll be at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival again this year. And I wanted to start our conversation by getting your view on what spiritual awakening, this idea of spiritual awakening, means to you personally and how you see it in the culture today as well. Spiritual awakening. Well, for me, awakening is almost a synonym for spirituality. <laughs> so it's almost a tautology to talk about spiritual awakening. So, of course, um, Buddha means the awakened one. And uh, both Jesus and Paul talked about waking up. And um, Kabir, the great 15th century Indian mystic, says you've been sleeping for millions and millions of years. and Why not wake up this morning? So I think the whole theme of waking up is is at the very heart of really 
what spirituality is about. And um, and we have so much to wake up about today. Um, certainly the ecological crisis is really a spiritual crisis. And by that I mean it's about whether the the earth is sacred or not, whether the four-legged ones and the oceans and the forests and the rivers are sacred. And if they're sacred, then um, uh, we have to reorient our relationship to them. And uh, obviously just seeing them as booty, as something to um, tear down and, and sell, is, uh, is, is, is inadequate. And, uh, and of course, we're paying the price we're paying the price for this, obviously, with um, with the quality of air and climate change and, and uh, disappearance of species and all the rest. So um, then to wake up about what our species is doing in terms of the amount of money we spend on weapons, is it $39,000 a second now that we're spending on weapons, and how this money could be oriented to health and education and conviviality and celebration if we chose uh so waking up to how the patriarchal version of masculinity that dominates in the world really what i'd call the reptilian brain that dominates is uh is inadequate for our sustainability and uh we could do much better than that so finding the balance again between yin and yang and um Divine Feminine and Sacred Masculine is at the heart of waking up. So I think this whole theme of waking up just cuts through so much, uh, so many uh, issues. Uh, wherever there's injustice, prophets come along to wake us up. And uh, propheto means to speak out. It means to shout out. It means to scream and to yell and to wake people up. And, and of course, this is what artists do or should be doing in their creative way, waking us up through drama and through film and through music and the rest about uh, what we really ought to be doing with our time on Earth instead of what we often are lulled into doing. So I I love the theme. I think, uh, as I say, I think it's at the very heart of the meaning of spirituality. Now, in Eastern traditions, sometimes spiritual awakening is talked about as a certain type of shift in identity that a person no longer identifies with the individual part of them, but that they're identifying more with the collective, with the whole. How do you see that, this shift in identity? Well, um, yeah, I think that's the nature of compassion. Uh, Meister Eckhart, out of the West, 14th century, says, uh, what happens to another, whether it be a joy or a sorrow, happens to me. So I think that's... um, that's going beyond the ego identity to the realization that we are um, in this together in in a deep way. And so Jesus, too, calling us to be compassionate as our Creator in Heaven is compassionate. And again, his teaching comes from his Jewish um, ancestry, his Jewish tradition. Uh, this, too, is a call to compassion and and to living in a, in a context of... Um, community awareness sharing and uh, and obviously this um, resonates with the Dalai Lama's teaching that as he says uh, we can do away with all religion but we can't do away with compassion compassion is my religion as he says and I couldn't agree more so yeah I think that's at the heart really of um, 
of all spiritual awakening is our the realization we're in this together. And then when you take today's science, just coming around to the theme of interdependence again, that that really uh, supports this whole understanding that we're not in this alone. Uh, we're interdependent with um, with all the, uh, the the elements of the universe, really, you know, the beings of the universe. We all come from the same source, and we're made of the same atoms. So there's this almost cosmic uh, picture, once again, of um, a pattern of uh, community, actually, of interdependence, and uh, rather than individuality. So I think we're taking on this kind of consciousness, spiritual consciousness, which is so ancient, is taking on the modern consciousness, which was about individuality and, and uh, often about the survival of the fittest, instead of of the fit those who can fit into the uh the larger community so the implications of this for environmental health and and survival and respect is uh, is huge but also for everything from neighborhoods to architecture to uh education it, it the implications are very great now Matthew one of the things that I'd really love to hear you talk about is what you see as the role of religion and being part of a tradition in today's world where so many people are being attracted to what we could call faith or spiritual awakening without a religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Right, kind of the distinction religion and spirituality. Um, I think this is real. Um, I just finished a, a book with Adam Bucko on young adults and spirituality. We we surveyed a lot of young adults and we interviewed a number on, on film and we uh and we did these dialogues because Adam works with young adults who live on the streets in New York City and he's having marvelous uh results there with his work. And over the years I've I've had many projects with young young adults too. And um there's just no question this new generation is not by in in great part of their exceptions of course but is not buying into the whole um apparatus of institutional religion for example there's a group called the young contemplatives and some of them are from a buddhist tradition others uh sufi others jewish others christian but they're not married to their particular tradition they get together and they share practices and all the rest and i think this is this is what I call deep ecumenism. This is uh, uh, going to this, the spiritual level of what all the traditions have in common. And when you get down that deep, um, the differences begin to melt. And uh, we're all human beings, and we're all seeking a, a contact with the source, a contact with wisdom, and, um, and a way to calm our reptilian brain so that compassionate mammal brain can assert itself again. So um, do we need all this religious apparatus? You see, that's really the question. And I think we don't. In fact, I don't. I think it's a luxury we can't afford anymore. I don't think we should travel with basilicas on our back anymore. I think a backpack is enough. Um, if you're Christian, the, the teachings of Jesus and the prophets and the mystics that have followed, um, that's, uh, that's, you can put that in your backpack. And um, 
I think the whole idea that religion is an institutional sociological structure with all of its buildings and everything else, I I think that's uh, minor. And I think a lot of young people uh, feel that. And I think the, the direction is more in terms of small gatherings and smaller communities and uh, less institutionalism and more authenticity in that spiritual quest for um, uh, compassion, for self-knowledge, for forgiveness, for um, moral outrage that is properly dealt with in terms of creative um, political uh, and social involvement and protest. Um, I think all that is the is the real heart of spirituality. I think that's the future of healthy religion. Uh, I think religion can easily fall into its own ego. There's such a thing as an ecclesial ego or religious ego that itself has to be critiqued and and melted. And uh, uh, the real essence of religion isn't that obtuse or esoteric. It's about uh, love and justice and... uh, uh, I think that's that's the path, and I think a lot of people have seen, of course, the shadow side of religion in our time. My goodness, the pedophile crisis of clergy and the cover-up, of, which is even worse in the Catholic Church, for example, of late, is um, what should I say? It scares a lot of people away from organized religion. Uh, So I'm with you, Matthew, in terms of sort of throwing off this big basilica. I think the concern that I might voice is, will people find themselves lost in space, if you will, lost with a collection of mystical writings, but not having enough guidance or enough of a framework for deeper spiritual investigation? And how do we fill that need? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it, because you're right. The, the alternative to too much structure is not complete uh, chaos or, or being completely on your own. There is some kind of dance and dialectic between order and, and chaos to keep things alive and creative. And frankly, that's, that's what my life work has really been. To name the four paths of creation spirituality, I think, gives, gives a structure that's, very, that's both fluid but strong. And um, with that, you can adapt uh, the um, inherited tradition and also um, uh, work with other traditions. So the via positiva about falling in love with life and the awe and the wonder and the, and the reverence and gratitude that comes out of that. The via negativa, the, the path of darkness and silence, but also of suffering and grief that's real and lost. That's real for everybody. And then, then the via creativa. Our creativity is born out of the the experience of light and darkness, if you will, of the via positiva and via negativa. And then finally, the via transformativa, the path of justice and compassion, including celebration. Uh, this is born of the other three. This gives you a real um, structure, a, a backbone that's that's. Um, substantive, whereby you can um, take uh, mystical teachings and, and prophetic action and find their place in your, both in your personal journey, but also in that of culture and community. And um, it's, it's really the role of the, of the artists 
of a culture and also the the spiritual teachers but real spiritual teaching is done mostly through art and um to to lay this out and to challenge people make it an adventure um and i think that's uh you know these are the kind of forms because you're asking about form these are the kind of forms that we need whereas when forms become rigid such as church structures often do um that's that's not sustainable. Uh, if we know anything from evolution, it is that forms come and go, and um, and those that that last the longest have some kind of uh, open loop to them, uh, a way to integrate new ideas and old ideas, and uh, and to be continually regenerating, continually creative. Like Meister Eckhart said, "What does God do all day long? God lies on a maternity bed giving birth." So the whole idea that giving birth is at the essence of the Godhead, therefore at the essence of a of a godly individual or of a godly culture, uh, that's uh, that's not information that was uh, preached from the pulpits uh, for the last few hundred years, uh, particularly vociferously, but it matches our understanding from physics today of how indeed the whole universe has been creating from the get-go. Now, you said a very interesting statement, real spirituality comes mostly through art. I don't think that's a statement that I would hear that many spiritual teachers make. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, well, it's about the language. You know, to me, there are really only two languages for expressing what happens deep within yourself. One is silence, which is very important. The other is art. Art is a language by which we, we share the um, beautiful experiences we've had. And like Father B. Griffiths, who was a very fine, very holy monk who died a few years ago, had an ashram in southern India for over 50 years, a Benedictine. He he says that uh, every religion began with mystical experience. Uh, Buddha under the Bodha tree, uh, Muhammad with the Koran, um, uh, uh, Jesus with his experiences, Isaiah with his and so forth. So religions begin this way with with experience. But when you have the experience, then you translate it into language. You want to share it with others. And then after the language, there come concepts. And after the concepts, there come doctrines. And you get further and further from the experience. So the the renewal of religion is always about returning to the experience. And Jung said the same thing. He said only the mystics bring what is creative to religion itself. So... um, uh, now, to me, the, the artist is in a place to name the experience better than the canon lawyers or the left-brain rational theologians, because every spiritual experience is beyond naming. It's beyond the verbal. It's beyond the left brain, because it's a right brain experience. And art, uh, music, uh, a dance, uh, uh, painting, uh, drama, filmmaking... These are the languages for bringing alive uh, the deepest experiences of our lives, uh, such as are named by the by those four paths. So, yeah, I think this is um, something that easily gets lost. One reason it gets lost is that our academic system, which, of course, most of our seminaries have sold their soul to get accredited, our academic system in the West is all about left brain. It does not honor the intuitive brain. Uh, Einstein had a great 
line about that. He said that we're given two two brains, and, and there's the rational brain and the intuitive brain. And the rational brain, he said, should serve the intuitive brain. But in fact, we live in a society where um, we forget about the intuitive brain. And the intuitive brain, of course, is that mystical brain, the brain of of experience. The artist, on the other hand, I believe, uh, dwells more with the intuitive brain. And um, and I'd even say, and I mean this seriously, with angels. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says that angels learn exclusively by intuition. So if you're living a life of intuition, you're kind of hitchhiking on the highway of intuition, you're going to run into angels. And... Um, I think that in, we call these angels muses of the artists. Uh, muse is another, really, a word for angel. Uh, but um, uh, the, our, uh, our, it is our mystical um, uh, life that taps into beings that are, um, uh, uh, what should I say, invisible. And uh, I, I've met shamans, for example, who are artists, who, and dead artists come to them at night and tell them to paint paintings. I met one, and he showed me, or his wife showed me, a painting by that was signed Paul Clay. It looked exactly like a painting by Paul Clay. And she told me the night, she remembered the night, her husband was deceased now, who was Native American, that he that Paul Clay came to him at night, and he told him to paint this picture. Hmm. And she showed it to me. So, you know, life is so much more interesting than um, than two-dimensional television or education would have us believe. Now, Matthew, I have to ask, because you said, you know, I mean this seriously about angels. Have you had encounters that you would say were meetings with angelic beings of some kind? Of course. Tell me about that. And many people have. I wrote a book on angels with Rupert Sheldrake, the British biologist, a number of years ago called The Physics of Angels. And, And one thing I did was I interviewed a lot of people. And I often, in in a big group, I'll say, "Now shut your eyes, so that no one's, no one knows what others are saying." And I'll say, "Just be very honest with me. Keep your eyes shut. Raise your hand if you've ever had an encounter with angels." And um, you know, sixty to eighty percent of the hands go up. Now, granted, my audience is is somewhat, um, or should I say, um, sifted through or something, but. Um, the truth is, people do have experiences with angels. And now that the mechanical universe has had its uh, lid uh, blown open, uh, uh, more and more angels, I think, are, are um, what should I say, are making themselves present. They've kind of like returned. I think they were banished during the era of uh, mechanism. And uh, I also say, you know, the traditions that angels like to worship, but I think worship has become so boring in the West that even the angels aren't in church anymore. I think more of them are in bookstores. A lot of people tell me these stories that um, <laughs> they've been in depression for three years, they've been a therapist, they got a message to go to a bookstore. They went to a bookstore and they're looking at the books at eye level, and lo and behold, from the top shelf, a book came down and hit them on the head, and they took it home, and it was it may have been my book on Eckhart or my book, Original Blessing, and they say, this is what I needed, I, I, and, and it, it changed my life. You know, a number of people have told me these stories. So, hey, to me, I conclude, well, angels are hanging out in bookstores. If someone was, up, was throwing that book down from up there, and there was no one visible who was doing it. And I'm not the only one who has experiences like this or stories like this to tell. But now, I would be curious, and I know I'm pushing a little bit here, but do you have a personal encounter that you would say, oh, I think there was an angel 
an angelic being of some kind involved in that? Well, I do. Um, I could tell this one story. Um, years ago, I was uh, working on the East Coast, and um, it was a, I was finished, and I was going to visit um, Frederick Frank. You know who he is, a Zen painter, um, a beautiful guy, an older man, uh, Dutch, but he wrote uh, books on Zen. What is? I can't remember the exact title, but wonderful books on Zen painting. And um, he and his wife lived in upstate New York. And I, I flew into Newark Airport, rented a car. It was pouring rain, and I was driving out of the airport. And before very near the airport, the car broke down. It was absolutely pouring rain and all. Oh, boy, this is going to be fun. Uh, I got out of the car, and um, and this ca- car drove up, a uh, very old, dilapidated car with five really big guys in it, thugs, actually. They, got, they were getting out of the car, and I said to myself, well, this is interesting. I'm going to die in a ditch at... Uh, you know, in, in New Jersey. And I wasn't scared. I just said that to myself. This is, this is the end. Cause they were coming, they were going to roll me for sure. And at that very minute, just as they're getting out of their car, which was parked right behind mine, a cop car pulled up and, um, the cop car said, what are you doing? And I said, my car broke down. It's a rental car. I, I don't know what else to do. I, I'm going to walk back to the airport. He said, get in your car, lock all the doors. And, uh, and I'll call for help. And the the five guys, big guys in this car, and they were thugs, they, they got back in the car and drove away. Now, I, I maintain that that policeman was an angel because, um, first of all, the tradition is angels can take on any form they want. So they can take on the form of a human being or the form of an animal or something else. And, I mean, the timing of that was just too perfect. <laughs> I think, for most New Jersey cops. <laughs> so uh, I would I would ascribe that to Angel. But I've had other experiences that were more of a more positive kind. Aquinas says angels carry thoughts from prophet to prophet, and I love that that image. I think of bumblebees or something carrying pollen from flower to flower, and I think that often when you're writing, when I'm writing. And I think often when musicians are making music, for example, and I talk to artists a lot, or scientists are coming up with ideas, but myself as a writer, that uh, I know I'm in a world bigger than my own, and that ideas are being um, exchanged uh, with more than just my left brain. And um, so there's some kind of shared highway of intuition that's going on there. And uh, I think it's appropriate to call that you know angelic Mm -hmm. or muse if you want now you mentioned that many forms of worship have become so boring that the angels aren't even present and i know that part of your work has been to revive and reinvigorate worship and that you've come up with this form that you've introduced into the culture called the cosmic mass and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit of the history and also sort of the design principles and inspiration that went into the creation of the cosmic mass. Sure. Well, history-wise, um, 
it happened this way for me. I was uh, finishing my book, The Reinvention of Work, and I thought I was finished with the book, and a dream told me to add a chapter on ritual. So the last chapter was on reinventing ritual, and it included bringing the body back and the and the contemplative dimension and, and other other issues, and um, getting away from reading texts, which is such a modern thing to do in, in worship, and uh, dancing, therefore. So um, I finished this, sent the book to the publisher, and two weeks later I was in Seattle for a, a workshop, and five young people from Sheffield, England, had flown in for the workshop, and it turned out that they had been um, reinventing um, the Western liturgy as Anglicans, Episcopalians, uh, taking brave into the church. And they had all these articles to share from the newspaper, and it was very exciting to me because the very principles I had just written about, these guys were doing. And they were all in their 20s, and... Um, and I, I then flew to Sheffield not long after to check out what they were doing, and I was very impressed by what they were doing. And their story was interesting because Sheffield at that time was going through a tremendous um, uh, crunch, unemployment crunch, because that was the rust belt of England. So there was a lot of unemployment, which meant there was a lot of abuse in family, a lot of unemployed men who were drinking alcohol and and roughing up their kids. So a lot of the kids were living in the street, actually, had been kicked out of home or left home. And then this grave community became their family, their community. And then the the leader, who was a young priest and very bright guy, he went to a Anglican church and said, hey, we'd like to bring uh, what we do in rave here into church because we feel there's a real religious dimension to it. So the guy, the priest said, well, fine, come on board. And six months later, the priest came to him and said, well, you have to leave church now. He said, people are complaining there are too many young people in church. I think that's really funny. I think that's <laughs> the last time that sentence was uttered on the on the planet. And so then they found a secular place in downtown Sheffield and did, did their masses there. Um, and, and then I was fired by the Pope about that time, too. And uh, I asked these young people, how can I help you? And they said, well, if you became Episcopalian, you could run interference for us, and you, you get what we're doing. We're already using your cosmic Christ theology. And uh, so I thought about it and said, well, the Pope gave me a pink slip. He doesn't need me. So I went to the Episcopal Bishop of Northern California here, uh, Bishop Swing at Grace Cathedral, and told him I wanted to become Episcopal priest, but just to do this, reinvent forms of worship with young people, and he gave me a green light on it. So we did that, and uh, I actually got a neat erotic to put up money to bring 35 of these young Englanders to Grace Cathedral with their equipment, and we had it what they called the Planetary Mass in the basement of Grace Cathedral. And um, uh, there are different, there's some interesting people who showed up for that, um, including the uh, Grateful Dead fellow. Um, anyway, uh, he showed up for it, and... Um, so then, however, they went back to England. Two months later, there was a big scandal in England. It turned out the head guy, this young priest, was fleecing some of his female flock, hmm. even though he was married with a little baby. And so the whole thing crashed over there. The whole community dimension crashed. It was a horrible thing. And, of course, I went back to try to help some of the grief of it. But at the same time, the question becomes, then, well, do we just not do it in America or what? So I decided to go ahead anyway, but to change it, to become much more transparent. I hired a woman, an unordained woman, to head the whole thing. We've never had a scandal in 16 years. So we've done over 90 of these masses, many in Oakland, but many other places too. 
and they work. And by that I mean we're dealing with postmodern language, not just dance, which is pre-modern, and um, but also using DJs and VJs and rap and all these new languages, these new art forms. Again, we're talking art to to express the sacred. And one thing that happens is that people of all denominations show up. We've had Buddhists and Muslims and pagans and Christians and Jews. And uh, we create themes such as the return of the divine feminine or um, the black Madonna or the black diaspora, the story of the black people, or the Celtic tradition. Um, it's very important, the themes that you pick. And um, because it's such an opportunity for the community to express its joy and its grief and its creativity. And we follow the four paths that I spoke of earlier, and that gives it a real skeleton. Now, I will say this. The first year when I was planning this, we didn't do anything. I met every week with rave leaders from the Bay Area, especially San Francisco. And two issues came up always, drugs and uh, why call it a mass. Well, drug-wise, I did not compromise. I said, I can prove, we'll do it together, that you can get high without drugs. And, and you can go to work the next day and, you're, and you're, you're not messing up your head. And uh, we lost probably about a third of the um, ravers because I was real clear on that. But uh, we've proven it. In fact, once we did a mass, there were 1,400 in San Francisco at a body-soul conference. And the theme actually was angels. And afterwards, three young men came up to be 19. And one of them said, I've been going to raves every weekend for five years. What I've been looking for in raves, I found here tonight. He said, I'm looking for real prayer. I'm looking for community. And what's unique about this, as distinct from rave, is it's not one generation. It's multi-generational. And to me, that seems really healthy. And um, so we've had a lot of responses, a lot of healings, physical healings, as well as religious, spiritual healings over the years. We've done these in L.A. and Boulder and Madison and Kansas City and uh, New York and uh, uh, Oregon, uh, Portland and so forth. So um, uh, it's uh, it's exciting. Of course, I'm looking forward because we're planning on doing it with Sounds True in Colorado this summer. At the Wake Up Festival. Yeah, now you, you mentioned that there were two objections, the drug issue and then the calling it oh, a the mass. Oh, the second was, yeah. well, I call it a mass. And I said, well, mass is a Western word for, for worship or liturgy. Uh, I said, you know, Bernstein, who was Jewish, wrote a Mass. Bach, who was Lutheran, wrote a Mass. So Mass is a very political term, and, uh, and it doesn't belong just to the Pope. In fact, what we're really telling the Pope, by calling it a Mass, is that he's not praying very well. He does, he's not praying in today's language. He's not leading us into today's uh, language for praying. And so... Um, uh, so the, the term mask carries a political punch to it, and it does. And um, they didn't, um, what can I say, I, they didn't object to that once we discussed that, mm-hmm. that uh, dimension to the now, word. One of the things that's interesting to me is praying by oneself compared to praying in a group community activity like this, especially in terms of working one's way through all of the four paths of creation spirituality. It seems to me there's something about the group energy that might take me through an arc that might not happen naturally just on my own. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, that's right. And that's why you want both in your life. You know, there, there certainly is a place for, for one's own private prayer, meditation, emptying, silence, uh, all that. 
But but as you say, there's also a place for the the community, and that's what we're not doing well. I feel uh, as a culture. For example, the issue of grief, the uh, via negativa. We always include a, a grief practice in the mass, the, the via negativa part. And notice what the churches have done. They talk about sin, and then you know they lose a lot of people. <laughs> I, that whole sin thing has been so uh, kind of over oversold. It's like the boy crying wolf. But I don't talk about so we talk about grief, and in grieving is is letting go and healing. And uh, again, as you know as well as I, last summer we did a grief ceremony for 800 people at uh, Sounds True Conference in Colorado, and it was a very very powerful experience for people. And so many people admitted, as one woman has said to me after one of our masses, she said, "Well, I liked all the mass, but the most powerful part." Part for me was the grieving. She said, I grieve alone in my bedroom, but no one's ever really invited me to grieve with a group before. So the energy is different when you do grieving in a group, as it is when you do celebration and joy in a group, when you get everyone dancing. Now, of course, we have um, images in usually the four directions. We have screens up there. So um, let's say, for example, the Mass is the Black Diaspora. So you'd have for the Via Positiva, we're dancing for 18 minutes with with um, pictures of the great black um, uh, 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 heroes, whether they be entertainers or uh, political figures or writers and so forth. We're all dancing, bringing this into our hearts and bodies together as a group, and it's celebrating the accomplishment of the of the diaspora. Then you'd go into the darkness of the middle passage of slavery and all the rest and we grieve together so that's a wonderful as you say it's, it's a powerful thing to do this in a group and it's different power it's it's important to do it individually and, and alone in solitude but it's also wonderful to be able to do it in a group and i think that's what real ceremony ritual liturgy worship or whatever you want to call it communal uh prayer is is about and again with today's um, technologies and today's art forms, so many of which are fresh and new, uh, there are whole new levels at which this can be shared. I'll never forget doing this once with Agape Church in Los Angeles at a conference they were having, and afterwards a young black man came up to me about 27. He said, "This was so powerful." He said, "This would be worth devoting your life to." I wish I'd gotten his phone number on the spot because he got it. You know, the, the potential of this to, I think, for example, we should have ritual centers in every city, not just these theater complexes where everyone's going to movies all the time. Uh, because ritual is the way in which you create community. As Melodome Somi says, there's no community without ritual. And yet I think most of our ritual in the synagogue and the church these days is far too heady, far too much about text on a, on a page, far too oriented to the eye and not enough to, um, to, the, to the whole body, to, to all the chakras. And uh, it's like Rilke said, the poet, he said, the work of the eyes is finished now. Go and do heart work on all the images uh, imprisoned within you. So letting the heart images come out that's what you get to do in dance. That's what you can do with the guidance, the gentle guidance of, of pictures that the DJs can come up with. And, of course, the VJs, the good music, a good 
Vijay, of course, is responding to the energy of the group and therefore brings the the sound alive, the music alive that carries the uh, the spirit of the community itself. So so much can happen. Uh, we have to recover joy. Uh, joy is one of the most uh, important uh, spiritual energies on the planet. And um, in fact, Aquinas says it's the reason the universe exists. He says sheer joy is God's, and this demands companionship. So the reason we're here is to create joy, to share in the divine joy. And uh, joy is how you heal people. Joy is how you, um, uh, what can I say, turn people and transform people. And uh, uh, we, we have a long way to go, uh, and, and, but ceremony and ritual is the shortcut. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit SoundsTrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I'm curious to know more. You mentioned this thing about ritual centers in cities, and I'll tell you why I'm going here. You know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about how we don't need to carry this big organized religion, this basilica, on our back. And as I said, my concern was that people won't have a structure. Well, they'll get lost. And you're like, well, no, there are some components. And I think this component of community and ritual is something that so many people long for, and they don't exactly know how to find it in their life and in their community. And they may or may not have access to a cosmic mass, you know, that it's not happening, you know, every weekend in every city. So how do we fill this gap? Well, I think the first thing is what you've just said, to realize that it is a gap, that we're missing it, that we long for it that as part of being human and as part of being um, spiritually evolved, really, to want to um, share joy, share creativity, share grief, and share our commitment to, um, to justice and healing and compassion. So um, it's in all of us. So that's number one, though, to recognize that, to go deep enough that we can see and that we can recognize that, frankly, what we're calling Worship is not uh, cutting the mustard today, and um, uh, and and it's, of course too. It's about bringing the young in because the young are the ones who are adept at this language of VJing and DJing and rap and all the rest. This is is new artistic language, which actually some of it is very ancient. For example, rap has a beat to it uh, that that really comes from the African drum, and and of course drumming is the ancient way to pray. It's not just indigenous Africa, but indigenous America, indigenous Australia. Uh, you know, drumming is, is the ancient way to, you get into your first chakra, you get, you get down to your connection to sacred Mother Earth. And, um, 
and yet I, I call um, electronic uh, music, I call it uh, urban shamanism, because it is an urban language, and yet it really is a quest for that first chakra, the beat uh, that gets you down there. So, um, and then, of course, you can bring in other instruments, too, but, but uh, we often use the electronic a DJ, but often there's live musicians as well of various types. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I just think that we have to recognize the problem, recognize that the churches are not cutting the mustard, and that's why they're they're pretty empty of young people and and others. And and thirdly, then we should put on these kinds of rituals maybe once a month. And uh, you don't need a church. What you do need is a space that has. That, that has a floor that's friendly to knees, <laughs> especially for the older people. But, um, you know, so a wooden floor. So gymnasiums work very well for this. You need, you need high ceilings, too, because of the projection of screens and pictures and so forth. Um, but uh, we have these spaces already. Gymnasiums are often not used at night. Um, and, uh, um, of course, carpeted areas work, too, such as a ballroom, um, you know, a hotel or something like that. Uh, but something that's friendly to the to the knees is important. Concrete does not do it. Uh, so well, and it seems like we need to have trained ritual leaders who that's know right. how to we convene. Need well, we've been training people in this cosmic mass now. Uh, in fact, we're putting another training on shortly. Uh, it's done by by phone um, and so forth, uh, teleconference. But people could look that up. Um, and, and learn how to do this. So we've been training people for years now. So people are doing them in different parts of the country, uh, but uh, uh, I'd like to see a lot more of it. And it even has to do with unemployment. I feel that there's a whole industry here, in the good sense of the word industry, uh, that is ritual is so needed, and it's a shortcut for healing. I mean, one fellow came up to me after our grief experience this summer at your place and said to me, you know, I've been going to a therapist for 21 years, he said, I'm, I'm going to quit tomorrow. This is what I was looking for. This this ritual really got me into my stuff. So um, this is, a, frankly, a new industry and an ancient industry. Now, I was with aboriginals in Australia a number of years ago, and a woman said to me, well, in our tradition, in our culture, we work four hours a day, and the rest of the day we make things. And then I said, what are they making? They're making rituals. And... Um, because there's a lot behind making these rituals, and it's fun, and it builds community, and it's good work. And, hey, we could be putting a lot of people, especially these young people who are only half-employed today because there's no full-time jobs for them, um, they could be putting these rituals on all over the place. And, um, and it would be a great, uh, a great way to bring artists in. Artists just love this, and there are all kinds of street artists that show up for these, like people on stilts and all the rest that make life fun and festive. And they wouldn't, you know, they don't feel at home in a church or a synagogue, but they do in this kind of space. You know, as you're talking, one of the things I'm reflecting on is how transformation often seems to be a process where when the transformative process comes to its conclusion, at least temporary conclusion. As you said, the word birth, there's a birth of something new. But how so often in our life and in our spiritual life, we get stuck. And, you know, we get stuck in the grief or the negative part, or we can even get stuck in the positive part, but that we don't move through the whole transformative process. I wonder if you could comment on that and how a group ritual can help move us through. Well, I couldn't agree more that um, 
we, we, each of these four paths is so deep that you can get stuck in any one. For example, in, in the fourth path, justice, you know, you can become a, a justice junkie. You become such a social activist that you ignore your your need for solitude and for and for quiet and all the rest, you know. And um, and in, in the Via Creativa, you can become so enamored of your mandalas or something else that they become your whole life. And again, there's no there's no attention to justice to the fourth path. And as you say, in the second path, we can become addicted to our our sadness, our our depression. Our, um, our our grief, that can be our whole life, our anger. And even the Via Positiva, I mean, that's where we'd all love to uh, land. But I think life itself takes you out of that rather swiftly <laughs> and throws other things at you. So I, I think there's less danger of being stuck in the Via Positiva, you might say. But, but again, the reason you can get stuck there is that it's so deep. And so that's why, again, the naming of the journey is so helpful, that it is a spiral. It's an ongoing, open-ended spiral, that you spiral from, from the positiva to negativa into creativa, and then, into, and then again back to the positiva. After all, the goal of justice is not justice. The goal of justice is to set a, a fuller table of more people for the via positiva. The goal of justice is that the celebration of life be shared with as many people as possible. So um, even though transformative is only a means. So I, I agree. It really helps to know that you're on a spiral here and that um, things are meant to move along. And there's a letting go in each of the, of the processes, you might say, in each of the paths. Um, there's a letting go of your grief. There's a time to let go of grief. There's a time to let go of, of, of creating and, and, and put it to work. There's a time to let go of just uh, protest or social action and to uh, imbibe the joys of life and the beauty of life, even if it means going for a walk and meditating with your, with your dog or at a tree or with poetry or music. So each of these things has their season, and the, the theme of letting go, which is, of course, universal in, in spiritual practices, uh, that shows up in each of them. And as you say, because otherwise you're turning something into an idol, uh, and you're freezing. And uh, that's, that's never a healthy way to go. Now, of course, as we've mentioned, you'll be leading a cosmic mass, massive ritual at the Wake Up Festival that's taking place in Estes Park. It's August 14th through the 18th, Sounds True's second annual Wake Up Festival. And I'm quite looking forward to that. We should have over a thousand people participating in a ritual that I think will be about three hours long that you'll be contextualizing. And I think that's going to be a tremendous experience. It'll be the first cosmic mass I've ever participated in, so I'm quite looking mm-hmm. forward to it. And Great. also, Matthew, you'll be offering a workshop. And before we end our conversation, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about this, because I know it's a theme that you're quite passionate about. The workshops on the marriage of the sacred masculine and the divine feminine. And of all the topics, of course, that you could have taught on, and there are many, you chose this, I think, because it's really a topic that you care quite a lot about. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I really do, and I think all of, us, all of us need to, because I think the, what I'd call the, um, the toxic masculine brain is, is sort of out of control. 
and you can call it patriarchy, you can call it the reptilian brain and all, all of the above. Um, but it's been out of control for some time, and it's killing us, literally. It's killing women, it's killing men, it's killing the planet. And we have to detox the masculine. We have to bring back the sacred masculine. Of course, I wrote a book on this a few years ago called The, the uh, Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. But I end the book with two chapters on the sacred marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. So we bring, we've been bringing the divine feminine back. The whole goddess movement, the whole women's movement the last 40 years has been such a hopeful um, regeneration of the human spirit at so many levels. And, um, but, it, but the divine feminine deserves a, a consort that's worthy of her. And, and so the next step, I think, is that uh, the, the masculine be cleaned up. And this is an issue for women and for men, not only because women have men in their lives, of course, as sons and fathers and brothers and lovers and husbands but, and co-workers, but also because uh, if, you, if it, you're at all Jungian, women have a masculine side of the soul as well as a feminine. So that means that women, too, are walking out around with a toxic masculine. And uh, we have to clean this up. So I think it's very important to name what is the sacred masculine. And um, I'll tell you two quick responses, uh, stories of responses to my, my book, because this is the kind of thing we'll be getting into. Um, one was from a woman. The first response was from a woman. She emailed me and she said, I have in my private library over 200 books on the goddess. Uh, not one book on the sacred masculine. Until I read your book, I didn't realize how much men have suffered under patriarchy. And the truth is, she said, I, I have two boys, and I really need to uh, learn more about the sacred masculine. And she said, I've been so busy uh, in my lifetime recovering the feminine that was so banished and lost in me and around me that I've neglected the sacred masculine. Then a second response is from a, a Native American uh, man who said to me, I've been working in prisons for 12 years, and your book is the first book I've ever used with prisoners that they, in which they found the nobility inside themselves, he said. He said, most prisoners are projecting onto others, but your book, because you're dealing with those archetypes, it forced the men to look inside themselves and find something noble there, not just something, uh, 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 let's say, dangerous or, or uh, the, the thing that got them in prison. So I was very struck by that, the nobility. So the archetypes, the father sky, of the green man, of the spiritual warrior, of fatherhood, of grandfather, the elder, of the blue man, these are the, the archetypes they deal with in, in the book in recovering the sacred masculine. And you know, they cut through any religious tradition. They're more ancient than any. Uh, they touch us all. And uh, so we're going to have fun in the workshop dealing with this stuff. I've often done, when I have a, a weekend on it, I will have people create skits around these these um, these archetypes uh, and just give them a quick, like, 12 minutes to create a skit around Father Sky, break them into small groups, men and women together, or around the green man or the blue man, after I would talk briefly about about each. And it's amazing what happens. The, there's a lot of laughter, and the images get into their bodies, their imaginations, this way. It's not just the a concept, but it's an experience. And it's amazing how people can shift uh, when you, um, when you uh, do this as a practice. And uh, I remember I did a thing at CIS on this a weekend, and three months later I ran into a woman in a supermarket. She said, I was in that 
uh, that weekend that weekend of yours it changed my life she said uh are are doing those those skits on the on the sacred masculine now matthew just tell me a little bit about the use of the archetypes. You mentioned the green man, the blue man. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure who the blue man is, so I'd be curious about that. But archetypes is the doorway to find out in ourselves what this sacred masculine is. Yes. You know, um, Marion Woodman, the Jungian psychologist from Toronto, says that think of an archetype this way, that um, uh, a a, a volt, an electrical volt of like a a million volts... (laughs) That um, it it really zaps you, and uh, and that's why it's transformative uh, for people to learn um, about the well the blue man for example. Um, Swami Muktananda in his autobiography talks about how his meditation on the blue man changed his life more than any other meditation he ever had, and it it got him over his fear of death. And it got him in touch with his creativity and especially his powers of healing. And, uh, and yet, Hildegard of Bingen, 8th centuries earlier, because Swami Muktananda was 20th century, in the 12th century, Hildegard also had an image of the blue man. And she called it the, the Christ in every one of us, the healing Christ in every one of us. And, um, and, and, uh, and the compassionate Christ in all of us. So here's a, a, a 20th century Hindu and a 12th century Benedictine nun having the same vision of a blue man that changed their life and that became an archetype, a a profound um, icon or metaphor that shifted their way of being in the world. Now, if if the ten I have have named in this this book, for example, all have that kind of power, then, you know, it's not going to be that hard if we pay attention to shift our definition of masculinity from the toxic definitions that our culture has been feeding us, that a, that a man is, uh, is number one and is on top and uh, doesn't cry and all the rest um, uh, and dominates, it's not that hard to shift it. Archetypes are, are, are friends. They are allies. And, and um, you know, Jung said that archetypes come along when we need them. And I think we need this today because we have this unbalance between the feminine and the masculine. And uh, it's not sustainable. Until we get the balance back, uh, we are a a doomed species. Now, just a final question. We've been talking in different ways about reinventing our way of being spiritual together in community. And keeping our spiritual lives alive without this structure of organized religion. And I'm curious to know where you think we are collectively on this path. Are we at the very, very beginning? Are we actually making great progress? And are you hopeful or not? Well, frankly, um, in my book on on the Pope, who's just announced his retirement, uh, called The Pope's War, um, I actually concluded saying that I think the Holy Spirit has been work at work for 42 years in the Catholic Church to end it, to end the structure, the patriarchal structure uh, that uh, is so um, dominant, and um, and that this is really the work of the Holy Spirit to um, so that we can start over, pushing the restart button on Christianity. Now I think Jews have to push the restart button on Judaism. Buddhists have to do it with their tradition and the rest. 
but um, so I think that uh, we are moving beyond organized religion. We we need to distill, take the treasures from the burning building, and there are treasures there. I mean, that's one reason I use the word mass for the cosmic mass, uh, uh, and and the mystics and the prophets and and uh, the gospels are our treasures are the. Christian tradition, just as like there are treasures in every tradition. But we have to travel much more lightly, all of us today. Um, uh, backpacks, not basilicas on our backs. So I think that um, that the, the very um, meltdown of the Catholic Church today, and it is a meltdown, uh, is a sign of hope. Um, there's actually a, a saying in Rome, uh, where there's death, there's hope. This comes from living over the centuries with lots of different popes, not all of whom were um, uh, to be uh, respected. But um, uh, out of the via negativa, out of the death of things, uh, the via creativa can happen. And I think that that's where we're living at the cusp of an extremely creative time, provided we can get serious and we can take what's really valuable and leave behind the rest, and invest it, if you will, put it to good use to uh, to heal, to heal individuals, to heal Mother Earth, to heal all our relationships. That's what it's all about, and to heal relations between different religious and spiritual traditions, and including atheists. Uh, there's a lot to be said for atheism. Uh, Meister Eckhart, one of the greatest mystics of the West, said in the 14th century, I pray God to rid me of God. Well, that's, that's pretty... Um, Good news for an atheist here, because God, the word God can be so readily abused and used and le- to legitimize um, a dominance and injustice that it always has to be cleaned up. And uh, there's a room in this, in this movement for atheists, too. Like there's a beautiful book by an atheist that came out in Europe this past year, the, the bestseller in, in England called, um, ooh, it's called, um, uh, the atheist religion for atheists, and uh, the writer who's Swiss and is an atheist um, says that atheists have to get better at doing what the church did pretty well, which such as architecture, building community, education. He has a chapter on each of these things, so it's really a kick in the pants uh, for atheists by an atheist about actually learning something. From the, the history of, uh, of of religion, that it's not all a shadow, and that too many atheists, he says, are too busy just pronouncing themselves and not really working with community. And he says, uh, healthy religion has done a much better job of working with community than atheists are doing. So it's a very interesting book and beautifully written. <laughs> Matthew, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, I've enjoyed it, Tammy, and thank you for your questions and for your interest and the wonderful work you're doing with Sounds True, including these rituals that are upcoming. Matthew Fox will be with us at our annual Wake Up Festival, August 14th through the 18th in Estes Park, Colorado. He'll be leading a cosmic mass and also teaching on the marriage of the sacred masculine and the divine feminine. Also with Sounds True, Matthew Fox has created a seven-hour course on radical prayer, Love in Action, on the mystical roots of prayer and its power for transformation. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.